1: ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break this down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence your guide to navigating the ESG space one topic at a time. I'm Shaheen Contractor, Senior ESG Strategist.
2: And I'm Eric Kane, Director of ESG Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we're your hosts for today's episode. Today we're talking about climate investing and carbon markets with Luke Oliver, who is Managing Director, Head of Climate Investments, and Head of Strategy at Crane Shares. Luke, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Well, thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Uh, so, look to kick things off. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the climate investment landscape? And you know, people throw all these terms out, right? Like low carbon, climate transition. When they when they talk about funds, but can you categorize and break this down for us?
3: Yeah, and 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 that all of that is part of the problem or the challenge. Sure. In that there's lots of acronyms. There's lots of new terms. There's everyone says them but not everyone means the same thing when they say them and also even even when you say the climate crisis and and i'm going to do my best because i do this every day i do my best to not get bogged down in a debate about the climate crisis because here's what's 100% happening doesn't matter what you believe about climate science it doesn't mean matter what you you think about the weather or what your political beliefs are 100% i guarantee you and as much as I can say that with uh, with uh, you know with this going through a compliance process, but as much as I can guarantee anything, it's that we are decarbonizing the global economy. The policy is geared towards it. The countries and commitments, countries and corporates commitments are geared towards it. Consumers, in many cases, especially outside the u s, demand it. And we've also got. Um, you know this carrot and stick we're seeing pricing on carbon increasingly taking over uh markets in 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 largest parts of the global economy and we're also seeing spending and i think about the inflation reduction act 700 billion plus to be spent between now and 2030 China spends almost that much every year on renewable energy and europe is now committing to spend about 288 billion euros so there's an arms race to decarbonize that's that's just happening so for this conversation, we can kind of park our political beliefs or even our scientific beliefs, as hard as that might be, and let's just talk about the investment opportunity. Yeah. So, so to to your to your your point, there's lots of funds out there that seek to capture the imagination of investors who are worried about changing climate, and I think that that's where some of these things go wrong. In that they're saying investors want to be responsible with their capital. Let's make funds that appeal to that. And the first the first mistake was people took they, they took ESG measurements when there's nothing wrong with ESG measurements they measure different uh, metrics for companies in terms of environment, social and governance and that's just information. However, the blunt way they were used where people just skimmed off what they determined bad ESG companies and didn't invest in them or they added extra companies that had good ESG scores and that threw out years, decades of investment, research and just suddenly put a very blunt filter on, on stock. So that didn't work. Then people talk about low carbon or uh, you know carbon-free investing. That runs into problems too because just because a company is low carbon doesn't mean that it's a company that's good for the environment, i.e. a company with a low carbon footprint isn't necessarily doing anything good. It's just in a business that happens to have a low uh, carbon footprint. Sort
1: of a risk mitigation side of climate.
3: I yeah, guess. well, well. So, so, so. I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so to to kind of to bring this to to a full to a close, is the right way to do this is not to. Um, the right way to do this is to say, well, how can we actually drive capital mm-hmm. to the places where we're going to solve real problems? Again, doesn't matter if you believe in those problems or not. If there is a return to be made, and we universally agree with the return potential then you will attract capital and so at crane shares how we developed our climate suite of etfs was we parked all these acronyms as best we could we use the word climate all of our investments in this climate suite are aligned with the transition that is happening through decarbonizing the global economy and that mainly is happening because we have a do have a climate problem so what that means is we invest in three core areas. We invest in carbon markets, which we see as the the stick. That's, that's tightening regulation. We invest in transition equities, which are companies that are going to uh, successfully navigate the transition to, to a lower carbon world. So that doesn't mean clean companies. That might mean very dirty companies. Um, again, not that we're the opposite of ESG. It's just that we're looking at change and transition, and that's what's important. And that's what's important for returns and important for impact, so that's where we want to be. And then last, lastly, we care about um, natural resources because those companies that are decarbonizing are gonna need to um, use a lot of natural resources like copper, like cobalt, like lithium. And and some of those are not clean processes to, to, to attain those metals, but they're absolutely critical to decarbonization. So all of that is to say, we like to think we're coming at this pragmatically and we're putting aside the acronyms and we're saying we're investing in carbon, the right equities, and the right natural resources, because those things will perform in the environment that we, without a doubt, can universally agree is happening. Sounds good, yeah. a so long answer, but uh, that, that's how we're thinking about it.
2: <laughs> no, it's, it's a great answer. Um, I guess one, a, a couple things I wanna follow up on there. First, you, you started by saying we are decarbonizing, and that's just the fact, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's refreshing to hear because I think oftentimes the conversations that we have center around the fact that that's not happening um, or perhaps it's happening and and not happening fast enough. So just to to follow up on that, is it your view that we're decarbonizing at the right rate
3: or do we ultimately need to accelerate that process even further? Well, we we need to accelerate. We're not doing it fast enough. And that's why we're feeling this change. And that's why you get, when you, whenever you have change, you get people disagreeing about it and fighting about it. So we're experiencing the change of gear. So we, it is happening. And I say that I, I 100% believe that is happening. It's not happening fast enough. But that's what the price of carbon. So by putting a price on carbon, um, and I'm not talking about people growing trees and selling offsets we, we can talk about that because I've, I've got you know we, we are involved in that also but primarily we're focused in the compliance price of carbon that is governments creating a free market on the price of carbon in the same way there's a free market on oil free market on gold and so on to some degree oil and gold both yeah. both have cartels to some degree but but bad examples but you get my point there's, there's free there's a market price for carbon and so um though and then the inflation reduction act as an example is is the carrot that's pumping money into decarbonizing. So here's what's happening. and this is I, I like this, I came up with this. I don't know if it if it resonates. but we already invented everything. We invented nuclear, wind, solar, geothermal, hydro. we invented we've invented g- ways to make green hydrogen. We just need to scale those things. And so here's here's another little thing that I think is uh, a novel soundbite of mine is when I hear renewable, some people hear woke. But what I hear is infinite. You can make renewable energy, you have infinite energy. And that's what every science fiction when I was a kid was about. That's the future. And yet here we are, 2023, burning coal, like we did in the 1800s. So this isn't about socialism or, or woke. or This is about the fact that for some reason, we never evolve the technology to scale in renewable energy. We just stuck with coal and gas and oil. And so global governments, and this is where you can kind of take the climate out for a moment, global governments realize we're not going to be able to sustain ourselves on this amount of energy and the exponential growth in energy burning rocks that we dig out of the ground, right? (laughs) So, So governments are trying to win the race. Who can create infinite energy? And now it sounds exciting, right? It sounds it doesn't sound woke at all. It sounds like capitalist, and it sounds exciting. So that's what is going to happen, no doubt. And you're right, the speed is going to change now because we're putting cash into it and we're putting uh, essentially a, a market price into it. And so last thing I'll say on it, humans are great engineers. You, The price of every company optimizes for how many staff they need, how much real estate they need, how much raw materials they need. And they never ever had to optimize the amount of pollution they made hmm. and so by simply putting a price on carbon companies no one's complaining they just say oh you know what let's let's start optimizing for how much pollution we have because it can save us money and make us more effective and that's what's happening this is all pure capitalism yeah. with, with guardrails which is like anything else like any other good uh, capitalist process
1: so look I want to dig into carbon markets which I'll be honest it breaks my brain sometimes just in how complex it is but before that I want to ask one question because you said decarbonize faster and when you said that the one thing that comes to my mind is you know what are the what are some of the industries that you think can do that in terms of creating opportunities or, or even what are the ones that see the most risks i think that's 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 what i'm curious well, about
3: well it's a really interesting question because those with the most risk, you assume are different to those with the most potential okay. and the, and, the, and as part of the transition, I think some of those overlap. So um, you so it's natural to think a company creating solar panels is the future and they're a growth stock, and that's a great opportunity, and that's true that those solution companies um, is a very good investment thesis there, but they're growthy and high value yeah. opportunities. So what are the,
1: some industries like besides well, renewable?
3: Which well is like, well, we'll take the energy take the energy okay. sector or the mining sector sure. and I've got a great example uh, in the mining sector but let's just stick with energy if you use an analogy of something like the energy companies are blockbuster video and the renewable smaller solutions type companies are the Netflix mm. well Netflix in this analogy might be really highly priced but also not having any impact because they're just creating something new but there's no footprint there to solve for it's those big of of all the blockbusters, so I'm not saying don't buy Netflix, buy Blockbuster, I'm saying let's look closely at the 200 blockbuster videos out there because 20 of them are making great strides and are acquiring the IP they're making the transition successfully because for, for more than five years now Oil and gas companies haven't called themselves oil and gas companies. They call themselves energy companies because, in theory, they don't care how they get there. They're just going to create energy. And so I think the risky – it's almost like intuitive that energy companies or oil and gas companies are at risk. But energy companies are always going to be needed. So I think the risk and the opportunities might lie in the same industries. And I always give this one example. I just think it's a great example. And um, Fortescue is an Australian iron ore I should probably get paid by those guys. I, I mention them <laughs> so so often, but maybe they'll notice one day. But they, they are an iron ore miner, right? They look like a company no one who cares about the environment would want to know, right? Iron is one of the worst polluters, and they're a mining company, and they ship it on ships to Asia and the US, I believe. And so really bad pollution happening there. But yet they're in the Australian outback with sun and wind. They're creating renewable energy, and they're using that to make green hydrogen, which they might ship if they're yeah. successful in the same way they ship iron ore, suddenly you've got standard oil of the future in green hydrogen in the Australian outback. And so it goes from a sleepy, poorly valued industrial to a very attractive energy company. So stuff like that gets me interested.
1: Interesting. And, and just fun fact, Eric, I feel like Fortesc is one of the most ambitious um, mining companies because it tops our BI carbon score in terms of uh, metals and mining.
3: Well, no, no, that's, that's exactly it. So so you're seeing them through data yeah. that they are different and they are transitioning and they are showing more promise.
2: So, Luke, you mentioned uh, at the beginning kind of the, the three strategies that, that you take or the three lenses. How do you address um, perhaps examples, you know, independent of, of Fortescue where maybe those are at conflict with each other? So if you think about, for example, you know, If you look at new commodities, new materials that are needed to help with the transition, we see some of those, as you suggested, kind of uh, contributing to Mm -hmm. more carbon, for example, more water use. So we take copper as an example. It's extremely water intensive. So you can help solve you know for energy and carbon for example with more copper through ev wires etc um, but then you're
3: contributing to another issue which yep. is
2: kind of water intensity so how do you balance these two yeah
3: it's tough it yeah. it, 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 it it is a challenge and that's i, I don't want to get overly politi- political but i think what everybody hates is hypocrisy and that's what upsets people and when people say something and then you look under the hood and say that it's disingenuous that's mm-hmm. they're saying this but they're not really doing that so we take that to heart you have to be you, you, let's not be hypocrites right we, we we are able to look people in the eye and say there are companies we like that are not good to the planet mm-hmm. but we like them as an investment because as an investor there is a trend we we see the transition we see that they while have they have a bad footprint or they're in a industry that's poorly regarded we see them in the transition and we see that their improvement can have more impact than a, a greener cleaner company um and and therefore we, we we were able to look people in the eye and say yeah this we, we had we had a we had a strategy once and a journalist said this isn't ESG at all and we said we know we didn't say it was an ESG we said it was a transition portfolio right. and we believe this will have more impact on the environment than things that were traditionally are ESG and so the same with the metals we, we have a metals fund, um, it's a transition metal: copper, lithium, cobalt, zinc, nickel, aluminum, and it's the same. We 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 that is what it is. These metals, their extraction is definitely not green. But without them, we won't be able to upgrade the grid to to make these great strides in being green. And without lithium and cobalt, I mean, I I was lucky enough to go to the. Um, the uh, Giga factory in, in Texas, Tesla's factory, mm-hmm. and I went to their, their, they were making great strides in getting um, as much of the rare earths out of their drivetrain. They were making great strides in reducing the amount of cobalt they used, but they could not, they were like, cobalt is too good a material. It's too effective for us to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. So we'll always need it. So then they started trying to source it right. in a renewable way. So that's the best thing companies can do. But our view, so here's how I, if someone really helped me to that and said, well, Where's the trade-off between the harm that mining causes and the good that the metal causes? Well, there, there's plenty of people can tell you the battery metals have this much pollution, and the and the break-even, the climate break-even is two years or whatever it may be. Um, but also, you can make an argument um, that as an investor, you're creating price discovery by us giving access to investors to cobalt and lithium prices. We can create the price discovery, and if the price discovery gets to the price, if we allow people to position you're essentially forecasting the future price by creating that price discovery today and if those prices are higher it's going to increase the technology and investment in extracting it to do it more cheaply and more efficiently so that is sort of the invisible hand of economics that that should work it's hard to quantify but that's why we have to just tell people it is what it is we we're investing in things that while not clean Ultimately, we, we we have a really strong feeling that having po- very positive impact, and uh, as long as you don't try to pretend you're doing anything other than that, I think it's okay. And I think that's you know, there's tough decisions have to be made.
2: Absolutely, yeah, and I think that ties in well to the the opening remarks that you made around, you know, how ESG essentially created a screen and said certain industries are are bad and and others are good and it's certainly not the the approach that you know we take w- within the BIESG team where we take i think an approach that's more in line with with what you're describing yeah. trying to identify uh the risk and opportunity uh regardless of the the industry and i think we've done some recent analysis uh, looking at the fact that ultimately if you wanna have the biggest impact on something like decarbonization, it's often you know by looking at the companies that are the biggest emitters, right? And yep. and they can have the biggest impact. So simply kind of ignoring them and, and saying that that's kind of counter to the, the overall idea of decarbonization, I think is something that we've always kind of encouraged against. Yeah,
3: yeah, and I mean, like anything, if you're gonna try and solve a problem, start with the problem right and, uh, not yeah. Ignoring it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no, let's no ignore it let's not yeah. let's ignore the problem and it's and it's uh yeah that's, that's exactly right
1: and that's 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 very true so look i want to switch over to you know that that thing i said that breaks my brain carbon, carbon markets. yes uh could you break it down for us a little bit just tell us more about you know what are carbon markets what are the yeah. different types emissions countries covered all those all the fun stuff
3: yeah yeah so right so Step one, there are two broad carbon markets. And of course, as you said, it's complicated. There's there's lots of details and facets to it. But first of all, let's draw a line between two types of markets. There's the voluntary markets or the offset markets. Almost complete overlap between those two terms, but not entirely. This is where someone, you know, plants a forest or they may take a building that has a terrible carbon footprint and make it more efficient. And by doing these things, they're saving carbon. They're either avoiding carbon going into the atmosphere or they're sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, either through growing biomass like trees or perhaps they've actually got a carbon capture, direct air capture uh, mechanism that's drawing carbon out out of the atmosphere. So when you do those things, you are doing a positive to the environment. You're removing carbon or avoiding it going into the atmosphere. And you can then register those actions and get granted through a registry carbon offsets. And then the person who is doing the good work can sell them to a company that is polluting. Now, that's a small end of the market. It's traded about $3 billion uh, this past year, maybe less. So it's a very small market on a global scale, but it gets a lot of news, uh, article inches. Everyone talks about it. People complain about parts of it. There is some challenges in that it's less transparent. There's thousands of different projects. It's very, uh, and it, and it's, and it's, there's, you know, a handful of different registries who all do a very good job at, at um, measuring carbon and granting these offsets. But it, it's, it's quite controversial in that, you know, there's, there's challenges. People suggest, for example, if a tree is saved, and you sell that offset well was the tree really in danger this one comes up a lot um you also get people thinking that if a company buys offsets are they actually is that just capitalism buying its way out of polluting their they're you know poisoning the dolphins but then just paying money to get out of it yeah and that that's actually a, a very incorrect uh a view on it which is that most of these companies are committing to reduce their carbon footprint and in the meantime while they're not reducing them while they're trying to, they're willing to fund projects to take out. so it's 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 pretty altruistic. Mm-hmm. But with anything, there's going to be teething problems. So let's park that, right? That's the I call that the frontier market of of carbon. It's the smallest part. It's the loudest part. It's the most volatile part. It's the least uh, consistent or the least um, the least standardized part of the market. So I'm going to park that. That's carbon offsets. Where I focus is carbon compliance markets. And this is an eight hundred billion dollar. Uh, that's the number I've been using, and, and I think Bloomberg actually put an article out this week saying that they, had, it, you know, it was up five percent or so from last year. So about eight hundred billion dollars traded. That's so much bigger than the volume. This yeah, is the big much, part. Much, yeah. This is the big part. So everyone talks about the three billion dollar part, and I always have to explain to people what I'm doing and what Crane Shares is focused on and our partners is focused on is the is the compliance. What compliance means is that. Companies, so European Union is is one of the biggest markets. They, by law, require companies in Europe to pay or, or buy carbon allowances. Think of them like permits for every ton of pollution they put into the atmosphere. So if, you're, if you have a, a gas, a, a power plant, you're burning coal or burning gas, you're putting carbon into the atmosphere. You have to measure that. Think about doing your taxes, right? You measure what you owe, and then you go and buy the allowances. You get audited. It gets inspected. Uh, there's various calculators that help you work out how much you pollute and how many you need to buy. And there are penalties if you don't buy them, which which are significantly worse than buying them. And so you have a very rigid, legally backed program. Europe has one. California State has one, which is paired with some of the Canadian provinces. Uh, the northeast of the U.S. has one uh, called Reggie Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is just for power stations in the northeast from Virginia up to Maine and then you have uh, the UK they're the big four that we that we trade and that we we hold in our fund so why does it work what does it do well this is what happens they set a cap on how many of these permits they auction every year and it forces companies to tr- bid for them and then trade them amongst themselves in order to hit their compliance requirement at the end of the year and they start off the program by oversupplying them so everyone has them they're not expensive And then they slowly tighten. And then what they do is is their tightening schedule aligns with their target. So if they want to cut pollution by 50% by 2030, they will reduce their cap by 50% by 2030. And that forces companies to, to essentially optimize, like I said at the beginning, the price of carbon. And so by doing that, you suddenly have companies that are pricing carbon. You get you get three main impacts, and because some people ask me, well, what's the impact? It sounds like a financial asset. It's very much like a financial asset. We're buying a, a real asset, and uh, because of this falling cap and the fact that it's falling faster than the amount of pollution is is reducing, the price will be should be squeezed higher, and almost by design, the the programs want the price of carbon to slowly and steadily increase. But I say slowly and steadily at a greater rate than inflation certainly than inflation but more than um, you know broadly more than other asset classes as they want to have this action come sooner rather than later so we have this scenario where you have this mechanism that is planning to be on one huge tightening cycle between now and 2030 and then on to 2050 and we can be long this asset that makes
1: sense. I guess what is your most exciting market
3: well so the big two our fund is sixty percent Europe, thirty percent California. So there are big two markets. Europe, incredibly exciting. We've just gone through a huge amount of tightening in that market, and it's sort yeah. of stabilised a 20, little bit. Goal, right? Yeah, yeah. We and and through through um through the you had, we had the Ukraine invasion yeah. that that put a lot of strain on European energy. So they kind of they didn't ease the market, but the in, in terms of this big tightening cycle, they sort of front-loaded the auctions starting right now, mm-hmm. meaning they're going to add some extra supply now, but it's going to come out of the supply in three years.
1: Some more supply now, less supply later.
3: Less supply later. Okay. So if you were pricing this like a financial asset, you could argue that's neutral. You're, you're, take, you're putting 300 million extra credits in and you're taking them out yeah. a couple of years later. And if you discount everything back, it, it doesn't change the picture that much. However, the market in Europe has been a little softer on this. So what we see as exciting about Europe is that we are now sort of in the trough of where they've eased the front, knowing that the curve is much steeper coming out of here. Secondly, we also know that corporates who are buying these as part of their compliance need have said if these fall below 80 euros, they're trading about 82 euros today, if they come down much further, this is where they put their hedge on. So you've got this really nice sort of resistance from the compliance buyers, not far below where we are. Um, we have a traded range. We're at 82. The range has been 80 to 100. So we're, we're, we're excited about this, you know, being at the bottom of the range mm-hmm. with support right below us. So that's a great, in our opinion, entry point into Europe. And most of the forecasts between now and 2030 go up to 140, 160. And I think Bloomberg has a, a very similar, similar number. And so if we're down at 80 to 140, which which is in very significant return when you look when you look at expectations in, in asset classes. And we also do that with very low correlation. But I'm even more excited about California because what's different about Europe and California, Europe had its price discovery moment a few years ago when the market suddenly realized these were undervalued and the tipping point between demand and supply had tipped. And so Europe had a big rally about two two and a half years ago. We still think there is a lot left in that, but California as it's a newer market, its surplus of allowances was still in growth. It was The surplus was growing because they were still in that being generous mode to get the program up and running. And that's been tapering. And we hit the inflection point. This this We're right in the inflection point. So our models show that we stopped increasing the surplus at the end of last year and we go into deficit. Now, I don't mean deficit that there aren't enough. I mean that the amount being auctioned every year is not enough. So the inventory in the market, the surplus in the market, starts to wind down. And it starts to wind down pretty quickly from here.
1: Okay. So you don't mean that demand exceeds supply, but more so supply is becoming less?
3: Well, yeah. Well, So, so, so think of, uh, to, you've got the cap. And the cap used to be more than the market needed. So the, the amount being auctioned was more than the amount of pollution. We just crossed the border, of we just crossed the line where the cap... Is now lower than the amount of pollution that we're modelling. Okay, so that means that anyone out there, the, the collectively the California economy is having to tap into their reserves yeah. to meet their requirement, and that means that reserve drops. And every year, that means there's less and less reserves, and so suddenly we go to price discovery. So we think California could have a very significant move. I mean, we in fact we sort of model that. I mean, California is fascinating because it also has a uh, inf- CPI inflation plus five percent adjustment every year to to the various tiered levels and the ceiling and the floor price and everything else so really interesting market so i would say california is the most exciting right now we think that we could see prices uh, you know we're trading about 36 dollars a ton could easily be sort of 50 51 okay. in a relatively short amount of time so really excited about california very excited about the continued performance of europe so put those in a portfolio together and i think you have something really really interesting
2: Luke, you mentioned, of course, with uh, Reggie or the Re- Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative here in the Northeast, that it focuses just on power plants. Can you tell us um, how California and the EU ETS yeah. are different in terms of
3: the industries that they cover? Yeah, yeah. They they both significantly cover most major industry. And so um, it's interesting because New York is in Reggie, and New York is starting to think about a California-like program that expands beyond just just power generation so think about things like steel glass cement these are some of the agriculture these are some of the big uh the big emitters and they're included in these these program and europe is in the process of adding maritime so you can imagine shipping is, is you know I, I i heard a stat once something like the the Eight larger ships have as much pollution as all the cars on the planet, or something like that. Don't don't fact check me on that, but something like that, like some shocking wow. shocking number. So um, it is interesting that that some of these programs cover more than others, and then you get programs like New Zealand's smaller country, smaller program, but I think they cover almost all of their emissions economy wide. So there's there's a lot of different gradients, but what we're seeing is Europe is the kind of leader here, is is growing. The industries it covers, um, and they're also putting a tariff now called the carbon border adjustment, which will essentially put a tariff on companies importing carbon-heavy, like steel, into Europe. So it means that there's no escaping. It doesn't mean that the European company will struggle against the importer. It it, it means in like I, I think it means that the importer starts to also hedge in the carbon markets, and we might see that price discovery. Moment. So really, this is an expanding market. And for anyone listening and and, and to your listeners, you may have already heard some of this before, but I guarantee a year from now, you'll say, I remember when I first heard about that. This is is happening. This is now about 20% of global emissions covered. Once China's program gets up to speed, Japan has a program, uh, like I mentioned, Australia just launched a a new program. It's going to rise pretty rapidly and um, it's not going to take long until everything's covered. And this is going to be something that is part of all of our lives, all of our portfolios.
2: Now, a couple of things I want to follow up on there. You mentioned China, which I want to get into in in a moment. But you mentioned, of course, the expansion of the EU ETS to include uh, marine shipping. And I think that industry, in addition to perhaps airlines, pose some additional maybe challenges to what we would see versus regulating emissions from a source like a power plant, which yep. is within yep. your borders. Mm-hmm. Um, so curious as to your thoughts on kind of how complete that can be in terms of capturing emissions from marine shipping, given obviously not all that shipping is happening within yep. the borders of the EU.
3: Yeah. Well, I, saw I heard a great story from a colleague um, that I think it was Europe insisted on taking tin or lead out of the solder used in in uh, micro, uh, micro, uh, microchips. And so when that happened, even though that was only for Europe, the chip makers couldn't afford to run two different processes. Mm-hmm. So they essentially banned, I, I, I think it was lead, from the global supply yep. chain. Europe is kind of leading the way like that with carbon. By putting this adjustment mechanism, if you want to import into Europe, you're going to have to pay it. Some companies got, got smart. Or thought they were getting smart and moved out of the borders, like chemical companies and things like that. That was that were able to. So to, to your point, a power station can't get up and leave. A avocado farm can't get up and go to Nevada. But there are there are some companies that can. Absolutely. And so now they've crossed the border and are shipping their stuff back. They're going to get hit with the carbon border adjustment. Exactly. So yeah. that's that's how it's being tackled. Um, is one of the more powerful tools. Aviation is interesting. The Aviation got a break from the European program because they committed as a is a aviation industry to create their own global program, and that's interesting because it's a compliance program, but they use offsets as the as the currency of it. So that's kind of interest. So it's a hybrid. So we so it's called Corsia, and we put that in our offset fund rather than our compliance fund, and that's simply because if you think about the demand supply, the compliance program, known, transparent, regulated standardized supply that is specifically designed to reduce faster than the demand i.e. pollution whereas on the offset side what we hope to see is all the corporations and governments need to buy them and then there won't be enough of them high quality offsets being produced and that's why both of them bullish stories but i much prefer the uh the sort of safety or the the robustness of the way the compliance markets is 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 governed and, and, and managed. Absolutely.
1: Luke, one question I I sometimes struggle with. So if I understand the compliance markets right, a company will buy emissions above its cap. Sorry, above what is allocated. So I think a lot of this depends on technology not coming in to decline emissions fast enough. So there is still that bare case for the carbon markets, where I guess tech comes in and solves all our problems, and a company doesn't yeah. need to
3: buy emissions. Well, so well, how do you? Yes. Think about that. Sorry to, yeah, no, no. I, so I totally get the question, and I, I just want to go back to one piece when you said above their cap, and this is a bit of a mis- misconception. There are some programs where they're structured like that. Like I think the zero emission vehicles. This is the one that everyone talks about. Tesla gets to sell these credits. That's a diff- That's that's something slightly different. These cap and trade programs don't work by putting caps on companies. It's a lot more free market than that. It simply says the whole economy has one cap. And it's up to those. If you pollute 50,000 tons, you buy 50,000 permits. Okay. So so it's slightly different. It doesn't maybe it doesn't change the question, but it, it's just worth it's It's a nuance that no one is going around telling companies you're only allowed to do this and you're only allowed to do this. They're just saying, guys, you just have to submit permits for all of your pollution now have at it you can either work at it you can look at the price of carbon and invest against that on reducing your emissions you become the more innovative company the more price competitive company so it's a little more like free free market than that so then and then the second part of the question was the risk is yeah. that what if it works yeah. and we solve climate change and we solve and again we won't we solve emissions and we go completely renewable or infinite as i like to call it so um, that is a risk. I talk about that risk every day. I call it innovation risk. So remember, why does why does carbon markets work? Number w- three things. One, a price on carbon means that company uh, means that when you auction them, you create an auction revenue. So governments are raising money for them to spend in grants, research, uh, funding, whatever it may take, uh, subsidies to move us towards. It's a war chest for for for, for creating a. Gr- um, a renewable energy edge in their economy. Number two, fuel switching. If you're burning gas versus coal, gas has half the emissions. There's a little. It's a bit more complicated than that. But the worst fuel becomes more expensive because you have to buy more carbon allowances. So naturally, people migrate to greener fuels, not because they're being nice or green, because it's not economical anymore to burn those rocks that they dig out of the ground that I mentioned. So um, that's the second one. And the third one is innovation. Now there's a price. So now, any invention that reduces emission or scrubs gas out of out of the out of the uh, emissions out of out of the exhaust has a value so now there 's this flywheel of innovation where more money is being pumped in they 're scaling prices are coming down so you 're right. The objective is to reduce emissions and do it quicker and quicker so here 's my 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 response to that If it works, that could put downward pressure on the market because the demand curve starts to fall faster than the supply curve. But that is why I use the sort of central bank analogy. If the the European Union or the California Air Resource Board that runs, or European Commission, should I say, that runs carbon, if they see that it's working, and as a result of it working, the demand supply is moving off the demand supply that they're trying to manage to, think of what Jerome Powell would do. If he sees the economy getting too hot, he, he raises rates, he tightens, or he eases. In this market, if they suddenly see it working too well, that's fantastic news they will then tighten the curve they'll say right we're ahead of schedule or we're accelerating let's accelerate our tightening curve and so i'm not worried about it if you see a headline about a great new invention that makes steel more green we might have a bad day in carbon but that's okay because if they adjust we'll come back so so i see those i see innovation as uh, volatility potentially volatility we should be happy with because it's a good outcome and we should be confident that the price of carbon will then be corrected uh over time back to where it was and beyond
1: that makes sense
2: interesting so luke you mentioned china briefly mm-hmm. uh that's obviously a market that you know had been in develop for a very long development for a very long time um can you tell us a little bit more about that and and whether or not you are excited about that market as well
3: yeah yeah well so, so crane shares as has, has is for many years had its focus on on China. and that's why we moved into this climate space because you cannot solve or, or not only can you not solve the issue, but most of the opportunity is being created in and around China. China is, has, has this rapidly growing um, carbon footprint. It also has the most spending in in decarbonization, renewable energy. So we see a huge opportunity there. So for us, it's a perfect marriage between, uh, but marriage but separate. But these are two distinct parts of the business that we focus on China and we focus on carbon. So um, you know, we 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 have a fund in in uh, electric vehicles with a lean towards China. We have uh, China green technology fund. In the carbon space, we don't hold. China yet because their compliance market is only maybe a year or two old and it doesn't yet have the depth and liquidity that say the European market has. So we're watching it very closely. We would love to add to our global fund. So we have a global fund, as I mentioned, it's mainly Europe and US. We'd love to see China, Japan, Australia, something in the Asian time zone added to that. China is probably, South Korea is another good one, but um, China is definitely sort of a front runner that we want to see get there. And and make no mistake, China It gets this uh, criticism sometimes that they're one of the worst polluters. Now, I I talk about this a lot, too, because their gross pollution is one of the highest. Their per capita pollution is not very high at all. People then come back to me and say, well, they have 1.4 billion people. That's why per capita is not high. But that's actually important, because if those 1.4 billion people were polluting like we do in the U.S., then we'd be toast. And don't forget that the reason the gross pollution is high there is because all through the 80s, we were outsourcing all our big industrial jobs and industrial processes. So it's a very unfair criticism. And China, more than anyone, I mean, like I mentioned, I mentioned the numbers, you know, we're talking about 700 billion being spent here over seven years China does five, six hundred billion every single year. So China really is a leader here and it's it doesn't get talked about enough. It, it always looks like because they've got this big footprint, they're not doing enough. The other thing to note is their targets are slightly different to ours. Most of the world is most of the Western world is looking at 2030, 50 uh, percent reduction, neutral by 2050. China, because of their growing middle class much earlier in their stage of you know their, their development, the economic development, they're saying we there's no way we can hit 2030, but we're not. We're on board. We're going to hit peak at 2030, and then by 2060, meet right. everybody else at neutral. So, um, you know, we're we're very close to that, and watching it very closely.
2: Interesting. So you note you noted a couple geographies uh, that you're excited about going forward. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on perhaps other areas within this general kind of environmental space where you might see markets in the future, maybe something around biodiversity
3: or water. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting too. So, that, so those. So, I think of water as a natural resource that uh, is ridiculously underpriced. There's not a great way to put that position on. Sure. Um, and, you know, a lot of water-type ETFs, that, That's they, they don't really have a exposure, real exposure to that. So that's a tricky one. But water needs to be priced correctly for us to start using it responsibly. Um, not to keep going on with my anecdotes, but, I, you know, I'm the sort of person that turns the tap off when I'm washing my teeth like to save water. And then I got the sprinklers running outside, and I my water bill told me that I'd used 70,000 gallons of water last year. And it horrified me because there's no amount of turning the tap off when i'm washing my teeth that can can put a dent in that and uh and so that's a real problem and so it should be too expensive that's a crazy amount of water to use unacceptable and so i you know i've got to make those changes but that's what pricing would do so i'd like to see water being priced properly and it, it will mean things are more expensive but it has to be solved. It has to be. Um, when it comes to like the biodiversity, that kind of feeds back into the offset market I mentioned. You know, where people are growing forests or saving forests. There's also credit given to the fact that there might be biodiversity in there, and not just biodiversity. You could be also uh, creating jobs or preserving indigenous. Um, Populations and there's a lot more. They call the you know the SDGs or like co-benefits of these offsets. So I'm not an expert in the in the 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 um, biodiversity credits themselves, but it it kind of comes hand in hand with the, the offset market. Mm-hmm.
1: Luke, getting to the voluntary carbon market. Am I right in saying that is not yet an investable product? Like you spoke about the compliance market as an asset class, right? That you can invest in. Why aren't the voluntary carbon markets an asset class?
3: Well, it is an it is an investable asset class, and we actually have an ETF that okay. that, that gives exposure to it. Although, you know, I always comment that this is much more frontier market like. Yeah. So, KSET, K-SET, to sound like offset, KSET is our offset ETF. And of course, when I look at that, it's very early, it's very volatile, it's very nuanced. And so, you know, I, I always put that, like I say, in a, in a frontier type basket, whereas the compliance markets where we have our flagship, you know, we manage about 800 billion today, 500 in our global, which is KRBN for carbon, and uh, and, and our California, which is KCCA, uh, Crane Shares, mm-hmm. California Carbon Allowances. So those are, those are our kind of flagship. So it is investable, but I certainly think that we're early enough in that market that We haven't seen the full adoption yet by institutions, so probably not quite ready for prime time with with retail audiences. But compliance markets, tried and tested, very transparent. Um, If if you think about our ETFs, you've got a government-issued asset that is traded on the ICE exchange, same place that oil and and, uh, uh, currencies are traded. And then you've got our ETF, which holds the futures contracts that are traded there in a 1940 act ETF. So, you know, triple, triple uh, layers of of governance.
1: And I guess the voluntary carbon markets, you know, similarly, it depends on how much are you reducing through technology versus through buying offsets. I mean, every company now has a carbon reduction goal or a carbon neutral goal. So actually, Eric, that's maybe a question for you how many companies that you know say they have these ambitious carbon reduction goals are aiming to do that just by buying offsets versus actually reducing via technology
2: yeah it's it's a good question and i think First and foremost, we don't always has have transparency yeah. into the answer, but I would say beyond that, it's very industry specific. So Luke mentioned, of course, Coursera, um, which is the offset market for global airlines specifically. There, all the companies are relying on offsets at this point because there's no alternative technology available so at scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, whereas you know something like utilities, we see kind of the opposite, where most utilities are uh, able to achieve
3: their their
2: targets through actual reductions rather than offsets. Yeah. So I think it it varies quite a bit.
3: And I'd even go as far as to say that the I don't think it's binary. I don't think companies mm-hmm. say, oh, we're not going to try and reduce our pollution. We're just going to buy offsets. Because that's not a sustainable way yeah. forward. But it's while we're reducing, we're because remember it's optional. They yeah. don't have to do yes. any of it. They could just say we're not going to do this. But they want to, right. and they've made those commitments.
1: They've made those goals. I guess it yeah. depends on the, what's it called, the cost of carbon, the carbon cost curve. At you know, at what point is reducing a, su- a specific amount of emissions more than the the cost of the offset?
3: Yeah. Well, with the marginal abatement cost margin curve. Abatement cost yeah. Curve. Thank you. Yeah, but I I think that's more relevant to compliance mm-hmm. markets, in mm-hmm. that the price of compliance markets because of this demand supply, they must be bought and there is only one known source of supply, that means that the price should be driven by that imbalance, but it should also sort of correlate to the marginal abatement cost curve, meaning that um, each ton of carbon has a different value, as in uh, a power station could switch from coal to gas, not the most expensive, one of the cheaper ways to reduce emissions. Whereas uh, an airplane flying on aviation fuel there isn't a cheap alternative to, you know, filling it with bean oil or, or something. So so theirs is much higher. And that's where there are people that can just switch and then there are people that really need to innovate. And so we look at that marginal abatement cost curve. Now, that curve suggests the price of carbon needs to be $1,500. Sure, yeah. And our average price in our fund is about $50. Yeah. However, it won't get to 1500 Because of innovation, the cost of polluting will come down.
1: So it's the experience curve, right? That's also another term, right? The more you do something, the cheaper it gets over the long term.
2: Maybe just one last question, Luke, if if you may, since we're kind of closing on this idea of the voluntary markets. Uh, I know one of the big controversies or or things that's kind of being uh, hammered out right now and will certainly be a topic uh, at COP28 is the idea of avoidance versus removal. Yeah curious as to that whether that's something that that you're looking at and your thoughts there and how those decisions might ultimately impact the the voluntary market
3: yeah what a great question i guess i can't speak for the industry but i can tell you what i think and i and i and i really hope this this kind of hits home both of them are incredibly important you absolutely need both of them the problem is that the avoidance is what has come under a lot of scrutiny because each ton of carbon is called a ton, and questions are raised on how likely was a tree to be cut down that you avoided. And if it wasn't going to be cut down, or if you saved that tree, it, but it means they just went and cut the next tree down instead, that created a lot of doubt and put a lot of fear into the market on how that's going to be measured. And so for that reason, and, and we don't want to add to the problem, but when we look at these program uh, projects, we are definitely tending towards removals because it's more measurable Mm -hmm. and the additionality is more measurable. So we do think that's the way forward. But I can't stress enough how important it is that we do save, we do avoid. The best way to do this is to stop cutting down vibrant ecosystems. So very tricky one. Um, the, The sentiment is definitely favoring removals right now. And because of that, we have to focus there. But I really want to make sure or hope that people get back on track with the avoidance uh, because it's so important. We just need to get that right. And and the teething problems that the industry's had needs to get worked out. And then we need to make sure we get back to avoidance as well.
2: Absolutely.
1: And look, I think that sort of hammers in what you said about the voluntary carbon markets being a little more at its infancy
3: yes look, nascency
1: nascency nascency Luke, that was that was such a great deep dive in, into the carbon markets and climate investments i think eric and i can go on asking you questions but yeah um i think we can we can wrap up thank you thank you so much for your time thank I you my you know i said my brain is broken with carbon markets did Maybe i fix I it like a little bit yes
3: well one thing i recommend and i, I you know i hope uh, this isn't too pertinent but to 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 check out we we publish a weekly yeah. Uh, newsletter on this on our uh, on on craneshares.com or even on uh, we it's called climate market now which is where we publish our blog so monthly papers um research with it's all there so please please check it out
1: cool thank you so with that thank you luke and you you can find more information on climate investments carbon markets and a whole array of other topics by going to biesg on the bloomberg terminal which opens up bloomberg intelligence our research dashboard if you have an ESG quandary or burning questions you would like to ask our BI expert analysts, please send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Thank you.